Hey there, you're listening to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. If you'd like to find out more information, you can go to campusbiblestudy.org. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 to 38. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I'll take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I'll give you a new heart, and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I will remove, remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God." And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I'll make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never gain, never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I'll cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God. This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people, then they will know that I am the Lord. Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Well, welcome to night three. It's great to have you with us from wherever you're watching along, uh, all over Australia, all over the world. Thanks for being here with us. We've got lots to get through tonight. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word. Please pray with me. Our Father God, we're really thankful to you for this mid-year conference. Even though it's been so different to normal, we thank you for the things you're teaching us. We pray that again tonight you'll strengthen us to have the energy to think well, to understand what you are saying in your word and to apply it to our lives so that we might live in honour of your lordship. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what does it take to change behaviour? What does it take to change your behaviour? What does it take to change anyone's behaviour? In the last few weeks, the threat of COVID-19 has raised this question across the world. So you might think that the threat of catching a potentially life-threatening virus might be something of a behaviour changer for people, for the average person. But we keep hearing stories where obviously it's not. The United States has been suffering pretty badly under COVID-19, perhaps more than anywhere else in the world. Yet even at the height of the pandemic, there have been protests from US citizens who are unhappy with their government imposing lockdowns and social distancing. This uh, particular protest happened at a time when over a million people had already contracted COVID-19 in the United States of America and over 80,000 people had already died from COVID-19. When one placard in particular at a protest rally said it all for me, it said, give me liberty or give me COVID-19. Whatever you do, don't make me stay at home for a few weeks. 
But before we point too many fingers at the US, perhaps we should look in our own backyard. When our own virus statistics were rising rapidly, uh, we were seriously being told to stay at home. Why were so many of us down at Bondi Beach? And do you think if you're a high-profile athlete whose livelihood was on the line because the football season can't get underway due to COVID-19, do you think that might change your behaviour? But again, the news reports suggest even the threat to the whole rugby league season didn't change the behaviour of some NRL players. So what does it take? What does it take to change someone's behaviour? What would it take to change your behaviour? If God wanted to change your behaviour, how do you think he would try to do it? I guess a lot of people around us today think that God tries to change our behaviour by laying down laws and then threatening punishment if we don't keep them. Do you think that is the way that God tries to change your behaviour? Last night, we saw that the resurrection of Jesus has dragged the resurrection age into our history. Christians now live between those two glorious resurrections. We can look back and see the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we can look forward to our own glorious resurrection in the future on that great day when we'll receive new bodies to share in God's great new creation forever. But what about now? What about in between those two glorious resurrections? Does resurrection have anything to do with our present behaviour in the resurrection age? Does resurrection have anything to do with how you and I behave right now? How does God shape the behaviour of his people in this resurrection age? Tonight we're going to see that the resurrection is not just important for the past and the future. Tonight we're going to see that there is a third resurrection and it is very important for how Christians live right now. Let's get into it. We're at point one, Old Testament background. As we said a moment ago, a lot of people in our world would still think that God's preferred method for changing the behaviour of his people today is by laying down the law and then threatening punishment for disobeying it. And in a way, you can kind of understand people thinking that because that's pretty much exactly what God did for the nation Israel after the Exodus. You might remember that God saved his people out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them safely through the desert, through the Red Sea as well, to the foot of Mount Sinai, where he entered into a special covenant relationship with that nation. A big part of that covenant relationship was the law that God handed down for his new saved people to live by. And that law did certainly contain warnings or threats of punishment for disobedience. So it's understandable that people without perhaps a lot of biblical literacy might think that this law covenant is always the way that God seeks to shape the behaviour of his people. I guess sometimes even Christians make this mistake of thinking the law covenant is how they still relate to God. But God never intended that law covenant to be the way that he and his people would relate perfectly forever. God knew from the very beginning that his people would be unable to keep his law, unable to live rightly with him on the basis of that law. 
The law was never intended by God to be the great final solution to human sin. But the law was intended to constrain sin, to kind of keep a lid on sin until the great final solution came with Jesus. You can read more about that in Galatians chapter 3. So if you still think the way God will try to change your behaviour today is by law and threat of punishment, you are actually stuck in the past. You're stuck in a bygone era and you are missing out on the wonderful future that God has already brought about. Come with me back to Ezekiel 36, where God makes promises about this wonderful future. If you're having a bit of deja vu right now, yes, last night we were in Ezekiel 37. Tonight we're in Ezekiel 36. And yes, they are related. Ezekiel is prophesying God's word to the nation Israel who had struggled to live by God's laws. In fact, to say they struggled, well, is kind of an understatement. Look at how God speaks about their behaviour. Ezekiel 36, verses 22 and 23. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God's covenant people hadn't just struggled to live by God's law. In their sin, they had lived rebelliously against God in a way that has profaned God's holy name. Their behaviour has been so bad that they have trashed God's holy reputation even among lawless pagans. Are you starting to get a feel for the level of challenge that God is up against if he is going to bring behaviour change to people like this? And you thought the CEO of the NRL had a challenge. How will God change his rebellious, sinful people? How will he do it? Well, look at the promise of change that God makes to them in verses 24 to 27. Verses 24 to 27. I will take you, says God, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. These verses seem to give us three key themes about this promised transformation. And most of these themes come up again throughout the chapter, the rest of the chapter as it unfolds. So I think these three themes are pretty important. Let me try to summarise these three themes. First, there is the messy sin of the past that will somehow be cleansed. Second, there is the promise of a new heart. And third, there is the promise of a new spirit, which is none other than the spirit of God himself. These are three enormous promises, aren't they? Sin washed away, new heart, new spirit, 
That is what God promised to do to change his rebellious people. Now let's zoom in on the middle one, the new heart part of the promise for a moment, because that's an interesting promise. New heart? What would it mean to be given a new heart? Why would you need or want a new heart? What does a new heart do for you? The prophet Jeremiah has a similar new covenant promise in his prophecy where, again, the heart is quite prominent. So let's have a look. We'll just flick over. In fact, I'll put it on the screen. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. Behold, Jeremiah says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Did you see it? God promises to write his law internally on the hearts of his people. But why would that be helpful? It seems to be speaking about an internal motivation to live by God's law rather than just an external code hanging over you. And that fits with Ezekiel's prophecy where God promised to remove that old, stony, stubborn, disobedient heart of his people and to replace it with a heart of flesh. You can see it's a similar kind of metaphor, isn't it? The old heart that was hardened against obeying God will be replaced and softened with a new heart that desires to obey God. It seems to be about radical change that will bring an internal desire to obey God. Now, this is mid-year conference, and you know that I'm going to push you in your thinking, or at least try to. This new heart promise. When I read through the New Testament, I don't see a lot of explanation about its fulfilment. In fact, I looked at every heart reference in the New Testament and not one of them talks explicitly about a new heart. Where are the verses that say, oh, that that new heart that uh, God promised through Ezekiel, this is how God does it? Where are they? I think this is one of the most surprising elements of these new covenant promises. How does God keep this new heart promise? This is the kind of question you can dig your teeth into. Hope you enjoy it for three minutes. Either chat with someone nearby or chat online on the the live stream. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Enjoy. How does God keep this new heart part of the promise? Well, there were clues back in Ezekiel 36 if we were looking. Perhaps we have separated two things that should be kept together. Let me read again a couple of verses. Ezekiel 36, just verses 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Can you see what's interesting there is that God is intertwining the new heart and the gift of his spirit. And when you think about it, 
How else does God write his law on our hearts except by his powerful spirit working within us? How else does God renew hearts except by his powerful spirit working within us? How else can God change the hearts of his people so that we desire internally to live obediently to him? Of course, God keeps this new heart part of the promise by sending his spirit to change our hearts. The new heart promise is all about the new spirit. So perhaps we need to adjust our categories on the screen. There are really only two clear components to this amazing promise. Sin dealt with decisively and internal transformation of our behaviour by God's powerful spirit. Now there is one last thing that we need to see before we leave Ezekiel's prophecy It's when. When? When does God promise to do all of this beautiful stuff in the lives of his people? So we're at point two, when. Well, we started looking at this prophecy by reading four verses that summarised the whole section. Look again at those four verses to see when God promises to do this. Firstly, verses 24 to 27. Actually, we'll go through to 28. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. When will God do this? Did you see? Topped and tailed with return from exile, topped and tailed with when God brings you back into your own land. And just to give you a little bit more deja vu from last night, if we can put up last night's promise, we might see something similar. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I'll bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I'll put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Can you see last night's promises? Again, same promise, same thing. Can we go to the next slide? It's all about when God brings his people back to the land and and finishes the exile. When will God do this? It's all tied up with the return from exile. So in Ezekiel 36 and in Ezekiel 37, we have different pictures of the one event that will happen at the return from exile. Different aspects, if you like, of the same fulfilment event. And that probably shouldn't surprise us, should it? When God raises his people from the dead and puts an end to exile once and for all, that is when he will cleanse his people and give them his spirit to radically change our hearts so that we might internally desire to obey him. So all we need to work out now is whether or not you and I have returned from exile. Have we? You know that's the kind of question I'm going to throw over to you, don't you? So there it is on the screen. Have you been brought home from exile yet? Three minutes. Enjoy. Well, have you been brought home from exile yet? 
Did you say yes? I think you've got a strong argument. Did you say no? Don't worry, I think you've got a strong argument too. Let's have a look at this. If you came down on the no side, you might like to quote a few verses from the book of 1 Peter. The Apostle Peter wrote to Christians who lived after the resurrection age had been brought into history by the Lord Jesus. And yet look at what he said about their ongoing exile. On the screen, 1 Peter 1, 17 first. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. And then 2.11, which is on the same slide, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. You've got a strong argument. The Apostle Peter is on your side if you said, we haven't yet returned from exile. But if you're on the yes side, you might prefer to turn to Paul's letter to the Colossians. Let's pick this one up in our Bibles. Please turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, reading from verse 13 and 14. He, that's Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That idea of having been delivered out of the bad place and brought back into the home kingdom certainly sounds a lot like that return from exile. And notice that it is coupled with that other promise that we see uh, in, in in the prophecy of Ezekiel, that promise of sin being cleansed through forgiveness. You know, I could have made that question easier for you. Not that I like making things easier for you. I like pushing you, making you work hard. But the positioning of the promises of Ezekiel 36 right next to the promises of Ezekiel 37 and the fact that both promises stress the fulfilment happening at exactly the same time, that return from exile, suggests that we could have asked the question in a different way. Instead of asking, have we been brought home from exile yet? We could have equally asked, have we been resurrected yet? Because as we saw yesterday... The true end of exile is when the resurrection age begins. Let's have a look at it on the overlap of the ages diagram. This is a diagram that we use at CBS because it's really helpful for getting our timing right. Uh, Let's build it. We're going to build it on the screen. This horizontal line represents the timeline of our history. Uh, All of the promises that God made through prophets like Ezekiel, Jeremiah and others can be marked out in our history on that bottom line. And then the great fulfilment began as Jesus entered into our world. Jesus came and lived amongst us, died for us, and then was raised from the dead before us, and he ascended to take the throne in heaven, beginning the new age of his kingdom forever. And Jesus has promised to come back one day soon and to judge the world and put an end to the old age of sin and suffering and death once and for all. Now, in a sense, that diagram is all about Jesus, isn't it? It's all about what he did. So what does it have to say about you? Well, if you've been united with Jesus through putting your faith in him, and through him putting his spirit in you, 
then what happens to Jesus happens to you. So the Bible speaks about you, if you trust in Jesus, having been raised with Christ. You can see it in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Stay in Colossians with your Bible. We're going to spend a lot of time here for the rest of the talk. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So Christians today live in the overlap of two ages. We can add that in. That's why we call it the overlap of the ages diagram. Christians who are alive today are still physically stuck in this old age of suffering, sin and death. But at the same time, because we are united with Jesus, the Bible legitimately says that where he is, we are. That we have been raised with Christ and that we are now citizens of heaven. The Apostle Paul puts it beautifully in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And here it is. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Most of you understand the overlap of the ages diagram from regular use at Campus Bible Study. But you know, we could modify our diagram just a touch to show the overlap of exile and home. It's the same, isn't it? And just before we leave our favourite diagram behind, this is really a good moment to diagram the three resurrections that we're looking at. Resurrection number one, as you'll see, is Jesus' bodily resurrection. We've been looking back to that all week. Resurrection number two is when believers are raised with Christ in the overlap of the ages era. And resurrection number three will come when believers are raised bodily to dwell physically with Christ in the new age of his kingdom forever. We focused more on resurrection number one last night. We're focusing more on resurrection number two tonight. Any guesses where we'll be focusing tomorrow night? That university education is paying off, isn't it? Keep going. You're doing great. I hope you can see how important it is to understand our unity with Christ. Jesus is the one who fulfills all of God's promises for us. We only come to share in the fulfilment of those promises as we come to be united with Jesus by faith and by his spirit. Listen to how the Apostle Paul speaks about this beautiful unity that promises uh, even Gentiles a future in God's glory. Um, Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. Colossians 1, 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What's the mystery? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in in you. And in Colossians, that you is a Gentile you. Christ even in Gentiles. And if you are in Christ, if Christ is in you, that unity means you will share what Jesus has for all eternity. That is the privilege of being united with the right person, isn't it? 
About 20 years ago, I accepted a job as the government-funded youth worker in a small country town called Gilgandra, not far from Dubbo in the central west of New South Wales. The week after I accepted the job, that very town was featured on all the current affairs programs in Sydney because they had a law and order march down the main street of the town campaigning against youth drinking, youth violence and youth vandalism. And they thought it was my job to come and sort it all out. Great. Part of my job was to be out on the streets at night and identify solutions to this dangerous behaviour. And so I spent a lot of time out on the streets at night with drunk young people and there were quite a few fairly hairy moments, quite a few ugly situations. But you know what? I never really felt in any danger. I know you're thinking that's because I'm big and tough and can take care of myself. You weren't thinking that? Yeah, you're right. Uh, no, I'm just a scared little guy. The reason I never felt in any danger was because I was united with the right guy. My co-worker weighed in at about 110 kilograms and he just happened to have been an ex-Australian boxing champion. No one was stupid enough to mess with him. And when I was united with him, no one messed with me. I received all the benefits of that unity. If you are united with Jesus, do you realise you will share everything that is his? This unity will shape your life forever. And that's why it is to shape your life now. Listen to how Paul speaks about our everyday lives united with Jesus. Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Can you hear the unity language? In him, in him. And listen to the echoes of Ezekiel's valley of dry bones as Paul speaks about this, this beautiful unity with Christ. We'll go to chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Chapter 2, verse, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Just as a side note, just as a little step aside for a moment, this important unity is why Paul makes such a big deal in Colossians about the true gospel being so important. If you are not being taught a true gospel, then you cannot be united with the true Jesus. That is why Paul in Colossians challenges so many of those false religious beliefs and, and those teaching those false religious beliefs. The truth about Jesus really matters because only the truth about Jesus allows you to be united with the true Jesus. It's a little bit like those internet love scams. You know, you can't really be in a beautiful long-distance relationship with this charming Russian lady if the emails you're getting from her are not the truth, you may well be in a long-distance relationship, but it's probably with someone who looks more like this. 
and who sleeps in his clothes and who hasn't left his computer den for the past few months. The truth about Jesus really matters because only the truth unites you in this real relationship with Jesus. Okay, it's time to tie all of these pieces together. How does God change the behaviour of his saved people in this age of resurrection? We're at point three, how does God change Christian behaviour? Can I start by illustrating how God doesn't do it? Let me read to you Colossians 3, verses 5 and 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Hey, Christian, struggling with sexual immorality, impurity, passions and evil desires you know you shouldn't have? Have you been coveting stuff that's not yours? That's idolatry and God is seriously angry at you. You better stop doing that stuff or something bad's going to happen to you. The wrath of God is coming, so you better stop being naughty. Okay? Stop it. Or you'll face that wrath of God. If you don't put this stuff to death, you will face the wrathful judgment of God, naughty Christian. How do I go being stern? It's not my natural game, obviously. Sadly, this kind of Bible teaching happens in Christian churches much too often. Teachers try to change the behaviour of their Christian congregations by threatening the judgment of God upon Christian people. Now, what is lost when this kind of motivation is used to change Christian behaviour? Here's another chance to have a little chat with someone nearby or on the live stream. What is lost when this kind of motivation is used to change Christian behaviour? Go for it. What is lost? What is lost? Sadly... There are many things that are lost when Christian teachers use threats of God's judgment to try to change the behaviour of Christians in their congregations. Grace gets lost pretty quickly, doesn't it, in this kind of teaching? Christians apparently get what their sin deserves rather than grace in Christ. What else gets lost? Justification by faith gets lost pretty quickly because I'm no longer right with God just through faith in what Jesus has done. I now need to trust Jesus and get my behaviour corrected if I'm going to avoid God's judgement. But perhaps my biggest concern with this practice of threatening Christians with the anger of God to try to change their behaviour is that assurance and security in salvation is lost. You see, how bad would I need to be before God will kick me out, will throw me out of salvation? Or how good do I need to stay so that I don't get kicked out? It becomes a little bit like a university scholarship where I need to keep my behaviour grades above a credit average or I'll lose my scholarship, my salvation scholarship. And suddenly I'm focusing on me and what I have to do to secure my salvation when the gospel keeps telling me that I should be focusing on Jesus. And what he has completely done in the past to secure my salvation. If we read that verse in context, we see that the wrath of God is coming, but not against those who've been saved by Jesus. Have a look again at verses 5 to 8. Verses 5 to 8. 
Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. The wrath of God is coming, but not against those who've been saved by Jesus because they don't continue to walk in these sins. Notice that that Paul separates the Christians out and says, you used to walk that way, but you don't anymore. You used to live like that in those sins. They were your normal. You You were in the firing line of God's judgment. But Jesus has stepped in and he's changed your situation forever. Those sins are still terrible and God wants you to put them to death but not because you will face his wrath if you don't. That wrath against your sin has already been taken at the cross. It's been poured out upon the Lord Jesus all the way to death upon a cross. Sinners without Jesus will face that wrath on their own. Sinners who've been saved by Jesus have been saved from facing that wrath and are now free in Christ to put those sins to death. How does, that, how does God change the behaviour of his saved people? Not by threats of coming judgment. Not when you are already safe in Christ Jesus. Look at the beautiful way that God does seek to change our behaviour by reminding us what he has already done for us and where he has already placed us in Christ Go back to the start of the chapter, chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. God doesn't say, you get your act together and I might raise you with Christ. God says, I have raised you with Christ. So let your true home, your true location, shape your behaviour now. God shares heaven with us in Christ and then encourages us to live like people who share heaven. Can you see that God has acted first to give his people citizenship in heaven and only then he asks his people to live according to that citizenship. It's a great reminder that citizenship in heaven is a gift from God, not a reward for good behaviour. God gives his people that new heavenly status in Christ and then encourages his people to live out their status in Christ. So if you are a follower of Jesus, the way God seeks to shape your godly behaviour is by encouraging you to live the kind of life appropriate for someone who has been raised with Christ to heaven. It is living the resurrection, isn't it? Or as they say in France, viva la resurrection. Sorry for murdering the France. Uh, the, the title for this talk is, of course, a direct rip-off of that popular revolutionary slogan, Viva la Révolution. It comes straight from the barricades of the French Revolution, 
The slogan was adopted in Cuba for the Cuban Revolution, but most often we see it today on cheap T-shirts, album covers and assorted paraphernalia. Can we have a look at that? There it is. Viv or Viva? They're variations on the same word. I don't mind which one you, li- you, you choose. They are both translated as live, perhaps long live even. The slogan itself was, was about challenging people to live the revolution, to long live the revolution perhaps. In a sense, revolution was one of those things that you couldn't really half live. Manning the barricades in France 250 years ago wasn't for the faint-hearted. You had to be 100% committed. You had to commit to the revolution. You had to go all in on the revolution because it was death or glory. If the revolution didn't work, you didn't survive the aftermath. Viva la revolution was about living the revolution in full, in absolute, in everything. Christians need to live the resurrection in a similar way. Being raised with Christ needs to shape our everything. Christians need to go all in on living the resurrection. Viva la resurrection means a life that is completely shaped by the resurrection. Colossians 3 is a great example of all the different areas of life where our status of being raised with Christ is to shape the way we live now. Verse 6, have a look at it. Being raised with Christ means putting to death the earthly behaviours of sexual immorality, impurity, sinful passions, evil desires and covetousness, which is idolatry. These sins of the flesh are out of place in a resurrected lifestyle. Verse 8 adds the ugly behaviours of anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk. Viva la resurrection means getting rid of those ugly antisocial behaviours. Verse 9 adds that relationship killer of lying. And look at the reasoning for it. Have a look verses 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Can you see the beautiful logic there? Before you were raised with Christ, before you were saved by Christ, lying fitted with who you were. But now you've been saved and raised with Christ. You are not that person anymore. Viva the resurrection. Then verse 12 moves to the beautiful actions that do match with that new citizenship. Let's have a look at them, verses 12 to 15. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. If you have been raised with Christ, you are a citizen of heaven. And there is a new lifestyle that goes with that citizenship. The word of God is big in that new resurrected lifestyle. Verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, oh no, we'll, oh no, yeah, we'll keep going. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
Isn't it interesting that when we have been raised with Christ, the word of God is still to be central in our lives as individuals and in our lives when we meet together. Christ, our King, rules in our lives through his word and his saved, raised people love to speak his word to each other and to encourage each other to live by it. You might have noticed that this resurrected lifestyle is all about relationships, isn't it? We've already seen the relationship-killing behaviours that that we need to get rid of and the beautiful relationship-encouraging behaviours that make relationships flourish that we need to put on. Now in verses 18 to 22, we see that God has structured certain relationships in certain ways for his saved people to be able to live according to his good design. Let's have a look at it, verses 18 to 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily at it as for the Lord, not for men. Now, of course... The world will mock God's design for relationships. The world thinks submission is a dirty word. Christians, however, submit to each other in appropriate situations because we submit to our Lord Jesus Christ. Submission doesn't make anyone weaker or more powerless. Submission is a beautiful Christian attitude that every one of us is to exhibit in different ways, in different relationships, at the right time for the relationship. We do it because we submit to Jesus as our great king. So the resurrection shapes the way you relate now to your parents. The resurrection shapes the way you relate now to your spouse or perhaps to your future spouse. And from earlier in the chapter, God's word about sexual immorality and impurity also means the resurrection shapes the way you relate now to your boyfriend or girlfriend. In the last Bible talk that I gave on campus in the flesh before COVID-19 locked us down, I think it was about week four, after that Bible talk, I saw one of the best responses to God's word that I think I've seen from a Christian in some time. We were speaking in that talk, if you remember, um, about men and women in Genesis 2 and I spoke a bit about marriage and preparing well for marriage in boyfriend-girlfriend relationships. After the talk, one of the CBS students handed me his response slip directly. He said, do you mind if I give this just to you? On his slip, as I read it later that afternoon, he explained that he'd been, well, not serving his girlfriend very well and they were struggling with sexual purity. He also outlined that her commitment to Jesus wasn't as strong as his. In fact, she didn't really call herself a Christian. Then he asked if if I thought he should end the relationship. I gave him a phone call that afternoon and we talked for a while about what was the most loving thing for him to do. And to his great credit, he worked out that if he was really going to do what was most loving towards her, then he needed to break off the relationship. 
They were going in different directions with different value systems. He was raised with Christ and wanted to live that out. She wasn't and didn't. And it wasn't helping either of them. He longed to see her saved by Christ. He cared about her. But he wisely realised that he couldn't be the one and it couldn't happen when they were in a romantic relationship that blurred the boundaries and basically communicated that following Jesus didn't make much difference. He got on the phone that afternoon to her and he did the hard but loving thing of breaking off the relationship. He's been praying for her since, that she might come to know Jesus. But he knows it's got to be other people that help her to do that, not him, because of the mixed motives that would be involved. Now there is a guy who is letting the resurrection shape his life, even when it's hard. He put to death some things that didn't match his resurrected status. And he is praying that his ex-girlfriend might come to know that beautiful resurrection for herself. He's praying that not so that he can start a relationship back up with her. He knows that that shouldn't happen quickly. He's praying it because it is what she needs most in her life. I love watching you guys make those kinds of loving decisions to serve others even when it hurts. I love seeing it in all of our students, making wise, loving decisions even when it's hard. What is it that currently shapes your life? What is it that currently shapes your behaviour? Is it your studies that are dictating everything else? Is it your part-time job that's not that part-time but it's dictating everything else? Is it your family that is dictating everything else? Is it your hobbies? or Perhaps even your addictions that are dictating everything else in your life. What is it that currently shapes life for you? God desires that your whole life might be shaped by what he has done for you in raising you with Christ. Viva la resurrection means every part of your life shaped by the resurrection in Christ. The resurrection really does change everything in the life of the Christian. Have a look at verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Every part of your life is an opportunity to honour the King who has saved you and raised you to citizenship in heaven. So viva la resurrection. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful that you acted first to save us, even when we weren't very lovable, when we were against you. We're so thankful that you don't tell us to get our act together before you rescue us, but you rescue us. And then your great rescue and resurrection shapes our behaviour from then on. Father, we're thankful for everything you've done for us in Jesus. And we pray that you will shape our lives by your powerful spirit at work in our hearts. As we read your word, please shape every part of our lives to honour you and to live out our true status, our true destiny 
as raised with Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out at Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org. Thank you.